0: As we've been looking at the idea of holiness, of walking in holiness, as we've considered that really as a, a resolution for the year, no doubt a resolution for every year for us. We're here in the last Sunday of February, and it's probably not inappropriate that we're yet considering resolutions for the new year. And as we've looked at that, we've... we've uh, with the topic of holiness, we've backed up all the way to the founder of our salvation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've considered the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've recognized that a walk in holiness requires a recognition uh, after uh, after our redemption that God loves us truly and genuinely. That there's no way that we can even anticipate walking in holiness without this idea that the Father in heaven loves us with a genuine love, that we understand, that we know. It's not some strange version of that. It's a biblical version. We recognize that, that, uh, that we have been forgiven by God, that that is, in fact, a, a, a matter of factual record of our Father in heaven, that the Lord Jesus Christ, through his life and death, and resurrection has purchased for us a permanent forgiveness so that we stand uh, in the presence of God as those people who are forgiven, who are cloaked in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've also affirmed uh, that He has given to us and offers to us strength in the Lord. And we recognize that assurance of our own belief, uh, the assurance made of the essence of faith itself is important as we enter into this, the confidence that we can go forward and walk with the Lord. And then we also considered, out of the letter uh, of 2 of Peter, this idea of, of discipline, the necessity of discipline, as the Apostle Peter addresses the challenges of his day. You, you notice what he says to a people who are suffering for their faith. He doesn't recommend the Caribbean cruise, actually. As a matter of fact, he really doesn't even address their suffering. Not in an unkind way or a harsh way or an unfeeling way, but the Apostle Peter directs this people who are redeemed in Christ to a recognition of a self discipline, of this idea that that in Christ, perhaps our greatest problem in walking with the Lord is simply to get up and get going. And that's what the Apostle Peter addresses. And this passage, uh, as well as last week's work, really will uh, merge into what it is that we've been doing for the past year and a half, and that is addressing with one sermon each book of the Bible. And while uh, no doubt you'll recognize that James coming after Peter is out of the Biblical order, uh, I am presenting this as well as a sermon that thematically would cover this letter of James. Now James actually sometimes um, isn't necessarily considered a letter in the same sense as some of the other letters of the Apostle Paul, for instance, or even Peter are taken because of the shape with which we see this writing uh, of the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, James. It has a very interesting feel about it. Of course, some uh, would call it uh, the Proverbs of the New Testament, appropriately so labeled. And so we're looking today, what we see here in these first few verses is uh, what can be and what I've called the process of spiritual growth. We're actually not going to focus primarily on these eight verses, but on the idea that they present to us. This process of spiritual growth. And uh, the idea of process, I think, is very important for us. Not least of which is because we very much live in a microwave world. And what I mean by that is speedy. Uh, we're not really into processes. We're We like um, things that don't involve sweat equity, which was a pretty interesting term, quite useful for new homeowners years and years ago, because they sort of built what they could of the homes they bought. But that's, we're in a turnkey world today. We roll in and the grass needs to be cut and bagged, but that's not how we live. And James addresses this idea and so we may ask ourselves the question today can one still live the Christian life in the 21st century are the days too dark as you read the scriptures you might get the impression that the Bible was written to a people in this pristine setting no doubt that feeling goes away pretty quickly as you see who it is that he's writing to and the situations that they're in. And so it should encourage us, really, to recognize that, um, yes, the Christian life can be lived in the 21st century. There are challenges that abound. But nonetheless, we see that we're, we're still yet very similar in situation to those recipients of what the Apostle James wrote. I'd like to focus today on really one idea and this idea I think encapsulates a significant theme in this in this letter of James and that is simply this idea of the law of liberty. The law of liberty. And so I'd like to draw your attention to chapter 1 verse 25 as we think about this and we think about how what James is writing about we see that he has he's talking about the language of a process here for instance We see uh, in chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy when you meet various trials. And we see here this process of the testing of the faith that produces steadfastness. And then it has a full effect to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a recognition of the need for wisdom there. There's an exhortation for us to ask about wisdom, but also a recognition that if we don't believe, we're going to get wisdom from God. There's no reason to pray for it because, because if we don't believe he's going to give us what it is that we're asking, then we don't even have uh, what is so necessary. That is the essence of our faith, and that is believing that we'll receive what he offers. So in this process, we see that James is exhorting us moment by moment here about how to live. It may be a little bit exhausting because it's really an extended list of how to live. And that presents for us another challenge, because when we think of testing and challenges in our own day, our culture is inclined to do what with challenges? Well, we <coughs> we're a lot smarter now, so we avoid challenges. We have workarounds for challenges. We have detours. We have people to do that for us. We buy our way out of challenges sometimes. People can do that. That's why I learned how to fix my own car. I couldn't buy my way out of it. If I could have, I probably would have. The challenges that we have are designed by God To validate, as we consider what it is that the purification process does for silver and gold, what does it do? Well, it validates that what that is, is gold, but it also purifies it in the process. I was joking with a military aviator the other day regarding an airplane. And I asked him if he kicked the tires before he got in it. Now, that's sort of an old idea, but it's a test of sturdiness. And that's what a test does for us, right? You build something, you push on it a little bit. It's a little scary, but when it doesn't fall over, it feels solid. That's that's the kind of test that the Lord is speaking about here in in James. So this law of liberty, now we go over here after this brief introduction is mentioned first in the letter in chapter 1, verse 25. In the context of not merely hearing the word, but doing the word. And James says the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty... And perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. And then over here in chapter 2, verse 12, in the context of the addressing of the sin of partiality, which may seem a little bit odd to you to think about this issue of partiality. But partiality is a common sin. It reflects poor judgment, not saving faith. Partiality is a prejudice. It's prejudging. It's, it basically is not really considering a thing because you've already determined that it isn't right. The problem is, is that often for God's people, we don't have a structural understanding of Orthodox Christianity so that we can reject that. So what happens is we do throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. And this is a common vernacular for what James is talking about here, the sin of partiality. We've gotten pretty good at judging a book by its cover, so to speak. But we need to admit that it's not a perfect way to understand what's in the book. That's what James is addressing. In that context, again, he reminds us of this law of liberty in chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and so act. Again, we have this hearing and doing. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Under the law of liberty. Now, we've had a running example of this, and hopefully it's helpful to you. This example of, learning a craft and entering into the beauty of that craft based on the discipline of the constraints of that craft. Now, for instance, if you are playing the violin and you work and labor hour after hour, day after day with that instrument, The beginnings of that training are going to involve holding the instrument properly. They're going to involve holding the bow properly. They're going to involve the the way that you stand. They're going to involve how you look at the music if you use it and all of that. And then it's going to involve all of the tremendous dynamics of where your fingers are, how to hold actually the instrument itself, which position you're in, how to hold that bow in comparison to where the instrument is and so forth and so on. And what you find is, uh, typically as a student, as a younger student, is that seems to you to be a very constraining and annoying law of the instrument, of the violin, for instance. But then you play like Paganini and you're pretty thankful for the musical law of liberty. Because what's just happened is you've been set free because of your involvement in the constraints of that to enjoy beautiful music. There's a difference between chopping up the water like a man that's drowning. and swimming 100 yards in 42 seconds. And it's about 15 years in a swimming pool. It's this labor, and that's what James is talking about. That's what he's talking about here, this law of liberty. Now, what is the law? Well, there's a few ideas. Right, around this, this notion of the law. But, but go no further than this. The, there's no allegorical aspect to this. This is the moral law of God. This is the law that was written on the hearts of Adam and Eve. It's the law that's referred to in the, in the book of Ezekiel, this new heart. I will put my law in your heart. That's the idea. And again, we may say, oh, I thought I was free from that. You're on the other side of the bars now. I don't mean the bar on the road. I mean the bar in the prison. We're not under condemnation of the law. We're under the protection and the security and the constraint of the law. A train runs well on the tracks, but you put it on a road, it's not going anywhere. It has to have the constraints of the track to run. And this is this beautiful idea of the law of liberty that James is talking about here, and you say, wow, that's a new idea. Well, you, of course you know it isn't a new idea. Let's look at this idea of walking in faith of the redeemed. We get excited about our imputed righteousness of Christ, this righteousness of the Lord Jesus that's applied to us. And we say yes and amen. And, but it's also important for us to recognize that the imputed righteousness of Christ is not the imputed holiness of Christ. No, that's, that's where the process comes in, right? That's where I'm getting up early in the morning and practicing the skill of taking in the Word of God, of speaking thankfully to the Lord in prayer. Faith is presented in James as the fundamental element in Christian character and development. Faith, and we learned A few weeks ago, this idea that we don't take faith as a whole, but that's one of the things that Peter helps for us to understand. Because he talks about adding this moral energy to our faith, right? And then these other virtues, we see that faith is this this thing that is a a multi-fashioned thing. It's not merely looking to Christ, right? But our saving faith is... More than that. Faith is presented in James as the fundamental element in our character and development. But let's consider this liberty of the following, uh, the law of God, additional references here. Psalm 19, 7 through 10. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. Not crushing the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even than much fine gold. The law of liberty, this freeing aspect, right, of being involved in a walk. Like this, Psalm 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I will run in the way of your commandments. This is a reference to the freedom of running with the wind. Feeling the wind in your face and delighting in that. I will run. This is the idea. It's a, it's a joyful idea here. Who wouldn't enjoy that? Psalm 119.45, I shall walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. I think the King James, the New American Standard used the word liberty here. I walk at liberty. I run in the way. I shall walk in a wide place. Again, the idea here of wide place is this, this freedom that we have, right, that, that is involved, again, as Peter says, about this discipline of adherence to the sweetness of God's law only by those who are redeemed. Romans 7, and 23, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see, as we discover this idea that the Apostle Paul helps us with in Colossians chapter 3, this putting off the old self and putting on the new, we came to understand that there is in the person that's redeemed a war going on. There are two persons in you. We're not, we're not trying to reform the old self. Because that's a, that's a legalism matter. We're living out of the new self. we will never be told. We are not told in the scriptures to try to reform the old self. We're told very clearly in the scriptures what to do with the old self. Put it to death. And live out of the new man. As Again, these these imperatives and these indicatives. The Apostle Paul says, be who you are. This is who you are in Christ. John 8.32 And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 8.36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The redeemed obey God, not out of servile fear, but delightfully as a son obeys a loving father. How does a son obey a loving father? What does that look like? It's delightful. It's a wonderful thing when your father loves you and you have an understanding of what he knows is best for you. And even in the rudimentary things that he asks of you to do, you do it with delight. That's this idea of a loving father and how we respond out of that 2 Corinthians 3:17 and 18 now the lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there's freedom and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the lord who is the spirit I want you to look at this word, transformed. Our sanctification, our becoming holy day by day, is nothing like winning the lottery. It's this process of transformation. It's a process of transformation. Galatians 5.1 for freedom. Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God. All of these passages of scripture are referring to this idea of the law of liberty in the same way that James is. Now, another idea that's important here as we think about this law of liberty, as we think about, again, just involving ourselves in this process of steadfastly thinking on the things of God, thinking God's thoughts after Him, understanding those thoughts that are revealed in the Word of God. It's also important as we look, and one of the aspects in the letter of James here that you will notice immediately as you begin to read is there are some pretty abrupt expressions of our remaining sinful human flesh. In this letter of James, we have exhortations and declarations that are not unlike yelling at a little child to get out of the road. And one of the things that would be important for us is we anticipate looking at the really the sense of James here is to recognize that the more profound and abrupt the exhortation, that should also have an accompanying effect on how we respond. I mean, hey, uh, you know, there's a big truck coming down the road And he's like 10 feet away from you. So you really should think about getting out of the way. I would encourage you to do that. Is that you think you're good? What what are you gonna do if if I tell you that? Uh, Or if I shout at you and lunge, grabbing at your arms and trying to pull you off the road, that there's a different feel to that, right? And so we see that. James is looking at this and if we don't really understand the dynamics here we may be a little bit offended at being called you adulterous people right but let's look at some of these again as we think about our response it is appropriate that we consider quite seriously what it is that he's calling the recipients to here for instance in chapter 1 verses 5 through 8 Asking for wisdom, or in general, asking for anything. He says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, double-minded, unstable in all his ways. It's the instability of doubt. Tossed to and fro. Chapter 1, verse 26, if, anything, if anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That's a pretty abrupt statement. And, uh, you know, sometimes we're inclined to play with religion, right? But he hitches up our religion with, The way that we talk, bridling our tongue. And we often are inclined to think that that's someone else's problem. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? These are very abrupt, earthy sayings from James, the brother of our Lord. I mean, how many people do you encounter and they say very confidently that they believe in God? Well, that raises their spirituality to the level of a demon because they believe in God also. And they go one step further, they shudder. In other words, there's a level of fear in demons regarding their belief in God. They're not redeemed. They don't have saving faith. They don't have that quality of faith, that saving faith given to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, they believe in God and they shudder. And Again, he connects this idea that, that the effect, the certain effect of saving faith will be growth, spiritual growth, guaranteed to grow. It's going to sprout. It's going to be green. It's going to bear fruit. Chapter 3, verse 6. The tongue is a fire. Here we go with the tongue again. James hammering away. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. I mean, that is, like, powerful. I mean, that is seriously abrupt language. I mean, can you imagine getting a letter in the mail that said that? And you're like, wow, that's like somebody else, man. I got the wrong mail. Check the address. But our own experience will validate the trouble that our tongues bring us into. Chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world. enmity with God. Now these things are difficult for us, right? Because we, we don't often think of things in such abrupt terms, the necessity of, of viewing danger as danger. We're, we're a people who dance often around the very rim of hell. Now let's consider some of these personal applications of the law of liberty. One is simply this idea of kindly holding children to God's standard of righteousness. This is how God wants us to live, and he's holding me accountable to train you in it with love and firmness. Distinguishing sin from childishness, each occasion of discipline for sin brings the child and parent into humble submission to Christ and his word and a gospel opportunity for the child's need of Christ, of a Savior, and of forgiveness, as well as the hope of heaven. James 4.1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You look at a little two-year-old with siblings and you are looking at this in real life. But God has a way. The constraints of what it is that he has called us to live by and how we're to live is the antidote to this. Secondly, denying self and relationship such to truly enjoy them. Laying aside goals that are self-centered and which may also reveal a dissatisfaction with God and his provision. If we believe Christ is the head and founder of our church and that he has brought us together for his own purposes, we would stop attempting to do church life in the margins of our lives and sincerely consider how to invest lovingly in the members of this fellowship as well as those who visit. We probably should admit that we're worldly and explore how we have been drawn into this sin by the subtleties of Satan. Again looking to James chapter 4 verse 4. I can only be a friend of God or a friend of the world. Where are my affections and my actions? Look at verse 5 in chapter 4. Do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Why? What does that mean? He yearns jealously over the spirit. Let's consider an utterly ridiculous illustration. Your father just purchased a brand-new Corvette, and he's letting you drive it on speakerphone with him at home. How's it going? How fast are you going here? Where are you at? What road are you on right now, by the way? Did you see that stop sign there? Okay, I'm tracking you right now, by the way, on GPS. Very good. Are you ready to come home yet? Okay. God guards jealously the Spirit. He purchased it at the price of the blood of His own Son. Do you not think that He's concerned about how you're going to live, and what it is that you're drawn to. That's the idea. Thirdly, having a penchant for complex and useless theological debate instead of regaling in the object of our faith, and personal useful investments in helping others obey the law of liberty. I reference James 3 1 here. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We should recognize that our own passionate debate about matters is didactic, it's teaching. It's teaching. But the problem is, is that oftentimes, because of our misunderstanding or lack of biblical knowledge, we don't actually grasp orthodoxy. Now, I use that word quite a bit, and I think it would be important for me to just briefly define that very simply. Orthodoxy is made up of two words, ortho and dox, or doxa. It's a, it has a Greek origins. And the, simply the idea, on the one hand, ortho is right. It's it's a bent or a correcting idea where it's being corrected rightly. It's the right thing, and doxa has to do with belief, right belief. I'm not talking about the Eastern Church. There's no connection between biblical orthodoxy, the way that it is used in our context, and the name of the Greek Orthodox Church, right? I'm not saying that everything the Greek Orthodox Church does is not orthodox. I'm simply saying that I'm not using it in that way. And so it's important for us to recognize, because we do. What it, one of the typical aspects of humanity, and again James hammers away at this when he speaks about the tongue, is that when we speak, we speak very confidently. And there are people that believe us. But we're wrong a lot. It's a very serious problem. Next, we should recognize that God has blessed you primarily to bless others. Now, this is, this is very difficult in a conspicuous consumption culture, right? Because, again, we may be persuaded that the reason that God has blessed us is so that we can uh, fully enjoy this and further isolate ourselves from the people that aren't as blessed as we are. James 5 addresses this idea Chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. This phrase that I think is appropriate uh, as an echo in our own minds, you've laid up treasure in the last days. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Yes, you need to take care of your family. There is a battle for bread, and it is just that a battle for bread. Yes, you need an emergency savings account. Yes, you need to put away for the future. But our inheritance is in heaven. And this is what James is talking about here. You you know, Peter addresses this idea that, that our inheritance is in heaven And God's not only going to save that inheritance for us, but he's going to save us for the inheritance. We're not taking anything to heaven. You don't need it. It's fully furnished. Lastly, loving others, that we prioritize the simple hospitality command, such as kind greetings and responses, thoughtful helpfulness. James 2.8, this royal law. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. This is not as hard as it sounds. But are we even teaching our children the simple hospitality ideas? Good morning. Good morning, how are you? It begins there. With our remaining minutes, I would like to draw your attention to something that is easier, in a sense, to grasp in our own minds. Because when we think about the law of liberty, and we attach that rightly, as the biblical notion is, to God's moral law, and we think again about that in its most simple form, and that is the Ten Commandments, it might be a challenge for us to think about how that applies today. In other words, how is how is the, uh, the moral law of God? How does that become for me this freeing constraint, if you will, this partition of discipline, this idea of discipline where I can run without being weary instead of feeling the weightiness of it upon me? Again, the law is not here to condemn us as God's people. It's not, it, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we may think, okay, well, What does this have to do, if I want to think about the Seventh Commandment, for instance, Thou shalt not commit adultery? We may think, well, that doesn't apply. (laughs) What do you look at on your cell phone? Are you cultivating a sense of honor and chasteness by the movies that you see as a family? Let's look closely at one commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, so this, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. you. You rightly identified this as the fourth commandment. The catechism is very helpful here. And I'd like to just simply look at a few of the ideas that come from the catechism Catechism question 60, how's the Sabbath to be sanctified? The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. Question 61, what is forbidden in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment forbiddeth the omission or careless performance of the duties required and the profaning of the day by idleness or doing that which is in itself sinful or by unnecessary thoughts, words, or works about our worldly employments or recreations. Now, as I look at that and I read that, I recognize that it's very possible that it seems quite heavy to you. Does this sound heavy to you? Hey, I want you to take a vacation. How does that feel? I want you to, I want you to take, I really, look, take the day off. This is a different day. The other six days are good days. As a matter of fact, this is and should be seen as a two-part commandment. Six days you shall labor. What did you do on Saturday? It's a work day. Saturday's a work day. And there are works of necessity that can, of course, be done on on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath. The Lord Jesus was very specific about that. And quite kindly, we are robbing ourselves of a vacation, of a holy vacation. And there are are myriad consequences from our lack of a holy rest. But it's not a day to nap. If you want to take a nap, that's okay. But the day isn't about napping. That's not what it's about. Right? It's, it's about drawing ourselves into the public and private exercises of God's worship. It's about taking extra time to read the scriptures. It's really sitting down in that chair that you moms never get to sit down in and teaching Father and mother, teaching your children, this, this is a day where we're, this is what we're going to do. It's different. It's a different day. It, takes some, it certainly takes some creativity, no doubt, with little ones. I'm not persuaded that it precludes playing and running around outside, obviously. But it is a different day. And it's a day that, that is designed... In this idea where we have spiritual food that we're about to enjoy as God's people, there's also this spiritual rest. But even even Christian in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress recognizes what happened in the arbor. Why was it there? It was there for a rest. He fell asleep. He fell asleep. And he negatively impacted the rest of his journey. This is a sweetness. It's a goodness to us. And this is something, again, that I just take this example because I recognize it is a tremendous challenge. And it is something really, honestly, that most of us have never really seen, maybe. And it seems oppressive, but if it seems that way, then we're looking at it wrongly. And that's what the Lord Jesus is talking to us about in the Sermon on the Mount as he explains the beauty of the law of God to the redeemed. It's a security for us. It's a fence that keeps us on the path. It's a beauty for us. It's, it's made as a provision For our safety, for our care, for our spiritual growth to be nurtured by God. Now we can look at all of the other commands and we can consider the same thing. For instance, if we were simply to take the ninth commandment. Or the third commandment. Not taking the Lord's name in vain. We have taken to ourselves the name of God. This is in our common experience. Hey, hey, joiners don't do that. We're different. We don't speak that way. Why is that? Oh, well, that's who we are. Christians. We profane the name. Right. God says, I'm your God. You are my people. He loves us with an everlasting love. He doesn't want to leave us like we are wants to see us. The Lord Jesus talks us up to the Father. And he says, they're growing. They're faithful. They're going to walk with you. They're growing in faith. They're adhering to the ways of the Father. They're lovely. And I will help them. And that's what he says to us as his redeemed. Let us pray. O God, will you help us to be a people that are known by the sweet and joyful adherence to the joy of walking with you in your ways, not in ways that are made up, but in ways that reflect the sweet, tender character of a loving Heavenly Father, displayed by the Son who walked among us, applied to us by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.